the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD. I'm your international Dr. Bill. You can reach me at the website, drbillradiomd.com. Click Listen Live, 9 to 10 a.m. every Sunday morning, Eastern Standard Time. And we're also on AM 860, The Answer. And you can go to their website as well and click Listen Live. You can pick up the old shows at my website or at the station's website. Oh, boy, lots of fun, huh? Well, today I'm going to talk about two topics. One is the India-Pakistan conflict, uh, which is important because of the size of these countries, the fact that they're nuclear powers, the number of people involved. It's a big deal. And then in the second half of the show, I want to talk a little bit about Michael Cohen. Um, I'm not a real big fan of of, of looking into the lives of sociopaths, but... Uh, Someone at the lunch table wanted to have some more information on it. So I said, okay, I'll do that too. Well, the India-Pakistan situation is interesting. Now, you may or may not recall that they had a tiff this past week. This was overshadowed by the U.S.-North Korea summit and the Cohen testimony. But the latest conflict between the two countries should not be taken lightly. I mean, these two nuclear powers have been at odds since gaining independence from Great Britain in 1947, and they're two separate nations divided largely along religious lines. Pakistan is overwhelmingly Muslim with a lot of terrorism and fundamentalism, and although India has the largest Muslim population of any non-Muslim country in the world, uh, the majority of the population are Hindus, but they have a huge population of Christians and Sikh, smaller populations of uh, Jains and uh, various different religions that have drifted in because of the tolerance that the Hindus have shown towards uh, all people. Now, many of the conflicts between the two countries have centered around Kashmir, which is the uh, protectorate of India, and its affiliation with India has brought Pakistan and India into wars more than once over this region. Now, what happened recently was that there was a terrorist training camp in the Pakistani-controlled portion of Kashmir, and these uh, uh, terrorists carried out an attack against Indian military. So the Indians retaliated by bombing the camps and killing a bunch of their people. 
uh, a bunch of the terrorists. And of course, this uh, brought a response from Pakistan and they shot down an Indian fighter jet, an old F-21. The pilot was captured and uh, I believe he was returned yesterday uh, as a peace gesture from the prime minister of Pakistan, who realizes that uh, it would not be in their best interest to pick a fight with India. So what happened with Kashmir, which is, by the way, in the uh, on the northwest border of India, uh, would be on the eastern border of Pakistan and on the uh, south central western border of China. It's a country that sits in between the three bigger countries. Now, Kashmir is a beautiful land. Uh, it's a storybook land, uh, but it has become in many ways a wasteland and the Indians will not go there to, uh, uh, to holiday or vacation anymore. And it used to be a big vacation spot for the Indians because of the conflict there. And the uh, Muslims have been slowly trying to drive the Hindus out of Kashmir so they could take it over. And the situation started back at the split of the two countries in 47, 1947, because Kashmir was given the choice of either joining India, Pakistan, or remaining an independent country. The uh, monarch there was uh, a Hindu, although there was probably a larger Muslim population in the country. And uh, so Pakistan said, well, this is predominantly Muslim. We're taking it. So the the monarch ran to India and said, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, I'll be with you guys if you'll protect me. The same kind of thing happened with Texas, only we didn't make it a protectorate. We said, well, you got to join and become a state and then we'll fight for you. So at any rate, the Indians intervened and the Pakistanis and Indians have been bumping heads over this, this country or this region uh, since 1947. Uh, both countries are nuclear powers, and the neighborhood includes other nuclear powers and uh, terrorist states. Uh, you've got China, Uzbekistan, Afghanistan, Iran, Tajikistan. And the stability of Pakistan is dubious uh, because of the many factions within Pakistan, including the military being divided. There are fundamentalists and terrorists. We know that the nuclear weapons that Kim Jong-un developed uh, were partly from technology exported by the Pakistanis. The Indo-Pakistani wars have, have occurred in 1947, 65, 71, 1999, and there have been innumerable minor skirmishes. And so th this is a powder keg. Uh, the retaliatory attack by the Pakistanis, which brought down the plane, uh, had brought an immediate reaction from the Indians. Now, the Indian population is 10 times that of the Pakistani population. And India is a much larger landmass with much greater technology, natural resources, brain power. It's much more advanced than Pakistan. And essentially, Pakistan has lost every conflict with India. Now, in the 1971 war, which was fought over East Pakistan, now known as Bangladesh, which sits on the eastern border of India. And it's kind of hard to, to fathom that Pakistan at one point had two separate land masses divided by India. Uh, but in 71, the conflicts between the East Pakistanis, now known as Bangladesh, 
and West Pakistan uh, boiled over and uh, India was involved. And so India went to war and they basically just crushed uh, Pakistan. They took 90,000 Pakistani military and civilian prisoners. They cut Pakistan's Navy in half. They took out a quarter of its Air Force, a third of its army. And this was not over Kashmir, but over the current nation of Bangladesh, which, which was at that time part of Pakistan. Now, the Indians didn't take Bangladesh. They didn't want more land or another country to uh, wrap into their already huge nation. They didn't care about that. What they wanted was to have uh, a, a friendly country on their eastern border, even though it was predominantly Muslim, uh, and that was uh, not friendly with Pakistan, and that's basically what has happened. Now, we have, and China, the United States, and Russia have, over the decades, we've intervened in these conflicts between the Indians and the Pakistanis, both diplomatically and militarily, because they're huge countries, well, at least India is. Together, their populations comprise about one-fifth, maybe more, of the world population. I think India is close to 1.3 billion people now, and Pakistan is, I'm sure, pushing a couple hundred million, so... You've got a big group of people here, and um, the Indian subcontinent is basically filled with India and Pakistan. I mean, those are the, the two big land masses there. So it's, it's not just a regional conflict, and we've been involved in all of this. And by the way, we sell weapons to both countries. The Pakistanis have more of our hardware proportionately than the Indians do. The Indians have also bought from the Russians, and uh, that's evidenced by the fact that it was a MiG-21 that the Pakistanis shot down. The Indians had several old MiG-21s. They're pretty antiquated planes, but uh, I guess for low-level bombing missions, they work well. So Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan announced that he would release the Indian fighter pilot, and I believe he did that on Friday. Uh, an attempt to de-escalate the situation. And the Indians, however, are demanding that Pakistan quit supporting terrorism. And terrorist camps in Kashmir and in the mountains, the, the, what we think of as the Himalayas, are for the uh, Indians and the Pakistanis, the Hindu Kush Mountains, and that's the mountains that have arisen because of the collision of the Indian subcontinent with Asia. Uh, it's pushed up these mountains, and they continue to grow, by the way. So it runs all through the spine of, of the Indian subcontinent, right up into northern Pakistan and Afghanistan. And uh, up in the mountains in northern Pakistan, as we all know, there's a lot of terrorism, and that's where Osama bin Laden and his folks moved back and forth between Afghanistan and Pakistan. So this is of interest to us, not only because of the regional conflict, which could boil over into an international conflict, but also because of the terrorism that's being uh, uh, exported from this region, not only into India, but into Western China, into uh, Europe, and uh, obviously into the United States. Multiple attempts have been made. And so... We're, we're involved. How did the Indians end up with all this 
Russian military hardware. Well, the Indians ended up siding with the Russians during the, the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And of course, we were more concerned about the Russians than the Chinese, so we ended up allying ourselves more formally with the Pakistanis, who were the traditional enemy of the Indians and who also didn't care for the Russians because they were helping the Indians, you know, it gets all mishmashed up. And indirectly, we were given a little bit of support to the Chinese because they were having tiffs with Russia. And, of course, we were trying to foment that even more. So we ended up back in the Pakistanis, an unholy alliance, that's for sure. I mean, our money and our weaponry and our technology have gone into making terrorists who have come from Pakistan and attacked us. But on the other side of the coin, we were able to eventually bring the Soviet Union down. And now the mighty Soviet Union is not so mighty. It's the, the nation of Russia, which although it has uh, a large nuclear arsenal, uh, is really not very effective because of its uh, technology, which is not kept up with, with the United States and China and its uh, inability to maintain its weaponry systems. So now the landscape has changed and we are warming up more to the Indians. And of course, this is going to be something that the Pakistanis are going to have to take a look at and deal with. So how do the two countries stack up militarily? Well, in manpower, the Indians have 4.2 million people in active military. I'm sorry, in total military. They have 1.4 active personnel, 2.9 million reserves, as compared to 919,000 total Pakistanis, 637,000 active, 282,000 in reserve. And then uh, both countries have home guards, which can also be called upon. An aircraft, India has over 2,000 aircrafts and Pakistan 951. Uh, India's latest fighters are pretty high tech. Uh, the latest Mirage is in their arsenal. They're also uh, adding to the technology and the electronics of their airplanes because of their vast resources in terms of brain power and technology and industry. They have helicopters, uh, about 616, as opposed to Pakistan's 316, but only 16 attack helicopters, whereas the Pakistanis have the latest version of the U.S. attack helicopters, and they have 52 of those. The tank strength, uh, it's almost double in favor of India, 4,400 compared to 2,900 for the Pakistanis. Uh, they have 6,700 armored vehicles compared to 2,800 in the Pakistanis. Uh, Self-propelled artillery, uh, 290, but the Pakistanis have 465, so they're more aware of a mobile conflict. Towed artillery, 7,400 for the Indians, 3,200 for the Pakistanis. Rocket launchers, 292 for India, 134 for Pakistan. 
Now, the Navy assets is really where the Indians are overwhelming. They have 295 ships compared to 197 for the Pakistanis, but they have an aircraft carrier, 15 submarines, some of which are capable of launching nuclear missiles, 11 destroyers, uh, and Pakistan doesn't have anything close to that. They have a bunch of littler ships, and they're just not uh, anywhere close to the uh, naval power of India. India is one of the largest naval powers in the world um, after the United States and China and Russia. Uh, India is probably at the top of the list of naval powers, uh, as well as having one of the largest standing armies in the world. So this is, this is not a, a lightweight. India is a big boy, a big player. Uh, it has vowed not to strike first. There's no first strike. Uh, but it has said that if Pakistan attacks them with a nuclear weapon, they'll, they'll retaliate. Now, purportedly, the nuclear weapons that both countries have have been decommissioned and are not um, at least immediately available for deployment and launching. Pakistan does have tactical nuclear weapons that they can put on onto uh, uh, an artillery piece and shoot at the Indians, and these are these are smaller weapons, uh, presumably to be a deterrent from the Indians coming across the border and taking over Pakistan. But the Indians are not interested in taking Pakistan. They don't want Pakistan. In the seventy-one conflict, they marched into Pakistan and they made it to the capital of Islamabad. And once they had secured uh, um, a, a peace treaty, they left. They went back to India. They don't want Pakistan. They don't want to rule Pakistan. They don't want the nation of Pakistan as part of India. They don't want to have to deal with the headaches of the uh, the backward Islamist and the, uh, the, the the wretched economy and all the problems that the Pakistanis are having. And now the Pakistanis are starting to get into it with the Iranians as well. So the Pakistanis have their hands full. We need to make sure that both these countries maintain a peaceful attitude towards each other. And India and China have bumped heads over the centuries. And they've had a conflict within the past uh, half century. And China made some, I don't know how you would say it, aggressive moves at the border in the Himalayas. And India responded by setting up batteries, uh, artillery batteries along the border. I guess the Chinese were building a road and the road was presumed to be for military purposes, so I guess the Chinese back down. I don't know the the whole story there. It's, uh, it's not a situation that we can ignore or take lightly, and I realize that the talks with North Korea and the Cohen investigation uh, are of greater interest to Americans immediately, but we need to keep our eye on this as well. Uh, the the let me say this about the uh, about the North Korea negotiations, the the talks between the two countries. 
some of the guys at the lunch table said, well, obviously this was a failure. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. I mean, we gain valuable information every time we have contact with, with the North Koreans. And this is one of the few places where North Koreans who want to pass on information to the United States have an opportunity to do that as aides to Kim Jong-un. They come and they meet with subordinates of, of our president and our uh, secretary of state and uh, they're able to give information as well. We have analysts there uh, who can pick apart what they're saying, and we can tell by responses, uh, by monitoring heart rates and skin temperatures and different things, uh, what is true, what isn't, uh, what's going on. We can also pass back to the North Koreans and listen, we know exactly where every one of your nuclear weapons are. And I think this was probably uh, an eye-opener for some of Kim Jong-un's people that we had so much information about them. But, you know, we gain intelligence every time we sit down and talk with an an enemy or a friend. I mean, this is is how you do it. So it was not a waste. And it gives us an opportunity to further confirm what we already know. Uh, have information on, and that is where are your nuclear weapons, where are your missiles, where are your production sites, uh, where's your uranium and your plutonium, where are your nuclear reactors, all these things that we already know, we reconfirm consistently uh, over and over again. We need that consistency so that if and when we do have to strike, we know exactly where to go. I mean, that's how you do it. And you use... Uh, not only diplomacy, but subterfuge and code breaking and uh, intelligence and not just going in and putting eyes on targets, but just talking to people. Most of the intelligence we gather is not from going into another country and looking around. It's from reading their newspapers and listening to the conversations that go on within those countries and talking with their diplomats and talking with people from those countries and talking with people who have visited those countries. And all of this is very important, very important. One of the guys at the lunch table was talking about Midway, uh, the, the naval battle during World War II in 1942, in which we basically took out the, uh, the Japanese aircraft carrier fleet. And uh, that was really the turning point in the Pacific War. Uh, from then on, we just steadily marched forward towards Japan and one of the guys was saying, oh, you know, we just got lucky. Oh, <laughs> no, 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 we did not just get lucky. We set it up. We knew that the Japanese had broken one of our codes, so we used that code to send an encrypted message back to uh, Pacific Command in Hawaii that, uh, that Midway Island was running out of water. And so the Japanese picked up on that, and they said, well, damn, they're out of water. I mean, they can't run their their equipment. They can't service things. They can't do anything. They're going to be in in deep trouble there. Let's go take Midway Island. That's a good stepping stone towards the United States. Guess what? (laughs) We set it up, and we had our aircraft carriers waiting for the Japanese fleet to come, and we defeated them. Now, yes, in war, there's always a little bit of luck, 
just like in any athletic event, you know, there's, there's going to be uh, an element of luck, but there's also subterfuge, uh, skill, planning, tactics, um, equipment, technology, all these things come into play, and all you have to do is look at the Super Bowl and see how this works because basically football is uh, non-fatal warfare, and the object is to get your team down to the other team's end and take their end zone by running in there with the football. So don't sell these uh, negotiations between North Korea and the United States short. Even if nothing solid came out of this meeting, believe me, there were things that came out of this meeting. It was a success in terms of information gathering, uh, reconfirmation of things that we already know, messages back and forth between the, uh, the uh, how shall I say it, the, the parties that are sharing information about the details of the countries and what can and cannot be done and where things are because you, you got to believe that not everybody in North Korea is a monster that's in, in the power structure there. You know, there are people with a conscience, there are people that have traveled and there are people that have read uh, and uh, even though the Kim Jong-un family and the hierarchy, the military people may be loaded with sociopaths and uh, basically this country is a slave state. There are good people everywhere and we will find them. And this is another way of doing it by maintaining diplomatic ties with indirectly with uh, North Korea and by having meetings. And this is an opportunity for everybody to sit down and those who are not happy with the situation in North Korea have an opportunity to convey that to their American counterparts and to pass on information. And we also can pass back information and we can lend them assistance in how to approach psychologically the power structure how to subterfuge the sociopaths and get them out, how to help the country step back from uh, the uh, uh, militaristic and uh, really it's a fascist state, I would say. Uh, the fascism, the, the barbarism that it has practiced. And, you know, these things take a little time unless you just go in there and, and crush them. And, uh, we're not interested in, in a preemptive war with, with North Korea. I mean, first of all, it wouldn't be much of a war. Secondly, it would bring the world community down on us. So all these things are stepwise. And uh, sometimes you just have to wait and see what's going to happen. Uh, Lincoln did this in the Civil War. He said when uh, his cabinet, and, and especially Seward, said, you got to attack the South now that they have declared their independence. You can't let this go on. And Lincoln said, no. He said, no, I don't believe in a preemptive war. We're going to take the moral high ground here and wait for them to attack us. Now, he did provoke them. He provoked the South by sending uh, a naval fleet into Charleston Harbor, and, and then the attack on the fleet precipitated the formal declaration of war uh, by Congress on the southern states who had rebelled. But 
there's a place and a time. And I mean, sometimes you have to step in and you have to be preemptive. That's what President Polk did in the Mexican-American War. Santa Ana was marching north with an army. I mean, he had already declared that he was going to take Texas back, and now Texas was part of the United States. And so Polk said, well, I'm not waiting for them to cross the border. We're going after them. And George Bush did the same thing in the second Iraq war. He said, I'm not going to wait for them to attack us. We're going in and we're going in now. And so there are a few times in our history when we have been preemptive, but I don't think we need to be at least not at this point with North Korea. Now, if if something gets uh, even jiggier about the situation, if it gets even, even wackier, then there may be a point where we don't have a choice but by then the world community will be on board with us. And we want to make sure that we maintain the high ground, uh, both diplomatically and morally. I mean, that's, that's important when we go into the world arena to uphold our image as good guys. And we are good guys. That doesn't mean we haven't done bad things. I mean, nobody's perfect. Come on. But, you know, what's going on in North Korea is just, it's 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 sad. It's criminal. I mean, these people are malnourished. Medical care is not there. They're treated like slaves. They have no personal rights, no no civil rights. Uh, when they defect and get to South Korea, they are lost because they don't know what to do. Uh, they're told after they're vetted and uh, informed and medicated and trained and debriefed and all that. They're saying, well, here, here's your citizenship card and you can go, go get a job. What do you mean go get a job? How do I do that? Well, they don't know how to get a job because they've been pretty much told everything, every step of their lives. And they say, well, can I travel to the South of, of the country? Can I go to Busan from Seoul and in, in, in South Korea? Yeah, sure. Well, do I need a pass? No. You just buy a train ticket and go. Well, how do I buy a train ticket? Do I have permission? I mean, you know, they're, they have been enslaved for so long that they're lost in, in an open society. And a lot of them become very depressed because it's, it's confusing. You have to go out and get your social security card. You have to get your health care card. You have to do all these things that were previously just handed to them and told this is what you get and that's it. Um, You have to decide what you want to do for work, uh, where you want to live, and all these decisions were previously made for them since they grew up in basically a slave state. So it's a tough situation. It's a tough situation, and we need to have uh, sympathy for the North Korean people. And as well, we need to understand that we're dealing with sociopaths, and they are personality disorders. They were not born this way. They were made by abuse and neglect on their own part. And so we have to move cautiously and gingerly and diplomatically. When I come back, I'm going to jump into Michael Cohen and see what this sociopath has been up to. God, what a scumbag. Unbelievable. But I guess that's what a lot of the politicians have to surround themselves with. They're scumbags. It looks like everybody at the top's pretty scummy. I'll be right back. I'm going to grab a cup of joe. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. 
With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. President Trump delivered a more than two-hour speech on Saturday denouncing Democrats and predicting an even bigger victory at the polls in 2020. Mr. Trump spoke before the Conservative Political Action Conference in suburban Washington. The U.S. and South Korea offering an olive branch to North Korea. This after the breakdown of the recent summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. Springtime military exercises that North Korea has always viewed as an invasion rehearsal are being eliminated. They will be replaced with smaller drills. SpaceX's new crew capsule has arrived at the International Space Station this morning, acing its second milestone in just over a day. Nobody was aboard the Dragon capsule launched yesterday, just a test dummy. And Malaysia's transport minister says the government is open to new plans to resume the search for Malaysian Airlines Flight 370. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full-service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727-384. 4611 Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments. So call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. Have you racked up more than $10,000 in credit card debt? Are you barely getting by making minimum payments? You should know. The credit card companies are tricking you into thinking there's no way out. Credit card companies would rather you didn't know that there are ways you can become debt-free and you don't have to pay the entire amount you owe. There are debt relief programs that help people like you escape overwhelming credit card debt. National Debt Relief has helped tens of thousands of people just like you reduce more than $500 million of debt. National Debt Relief has helped so many people, they're A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau. You don't have to declare bankruptcy or take out a consolidation loan. You have the right to settle your debt for a mere fraction of what you owe. Reduce a portion of your debt now. Call National Debt Relief at 800-518-4020. 800-518-4020. That's 800-518-4020. Human trafficking is modern-day slavery, and it happens in our own communities. Victims can be any gender, age, or race. Join the Department of Homeland Security's Blue Campaign to learn how to recognize and report this heinous crime. Visit our website at www.dhs.gov slash blue campaign. That's www.dhs.gov slash blue campaign. Your second look could be their second chance. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. Patchy fog this morning, otherwise periods of clouds and some sun high 81. Mainly clear and warm tonight, low 69. Partly sunny for Monday, high 78. Mostly cloudy Monday night, low 60. Not as warm with partly sunny skies on Tuesday. Winds from the north, 7 to 14 miles per hour, high 68. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Madison Baggett for AM 860, The Answer. 
locked up, they won't let me out. And I had a long day in court, stress me out. Won't give me a bail, it can't get me out. Now I'm headed to the county, gotta do a bid here. I'm used to living luxurious, I don't wanna live here. The walls is gray, the clothes is orange. The phones is broke, the food is garbage. A lot of niggas is in a back little bit of Akon rapping away there about getting locked up. And guess who's going to prison? I think in, in April or May, Michael Cohen, the lawyer who was associated with Trump, apparently was Trump's personal lawyer in some matters. Um, he's not a lawyer anymore. He got disbarred because he was convicted of felonies and he broke ethics by tape recording his clients and disclosing uh, client attorney priv- uh, information, which broke the client attorney privilege. He was the vice president of the Trump organization and personal counsel to Trump for a while. And uh, the press has called him Trump's bulldog or Trump's fixer. And he was even uh, involved with the Republican National Committee and the finance uh, aspect of it. I believe he was the assistant finance chairman. Now, Cohen is uh, from the Jewish side of the family, grew up in Long Island, New York. His mother was a nurse, and his father was a surgeon who survived the Holocaust. And he uh, went to the American University, and then he got his law degree from Thomas Cooley Law School in 1991, practiced in New York City. Apparently, he has a penchant for living high. He likes the, the high life, and even as a student, he was driving around uh, Porsches and Bentleys and uh, putting on airs, so he is one of these guys who has made money his God, and as I have preached before, when you make your God money, uh, you'll never be happy because you'll never satisfy that God because that God demands more and more and more. And at some point, you just can't uh, meet the demands of that God, and so you end up doing things that are Uh, unethical, immoral, illegal, in order to try to keep feeding that God. And that God is a greedy one. And that greed rolls downhill to those who worship it. And it's the host of a list of sins. All the seven deadly sins are right up there, attached to greed, gluttony, lust, envy. All of those things can be wrapped around that that greed bug that gets in people. And again, that's an expression of, of uh, anger, anger reaction to fear. And Cohen, who knows how he became such a sociopath uh, that he has been involved in so many scummy deals and, and so much uh, uh, illegal activity. I mean, uh, you know, this is just, it's really wretched. It really is. It's, it kind of, uh, you know, I didn't even want to talk about this guy, but but the guys at the lunch table, they all wanted me to, to bring this up. So at any rate, so Cohen has gotten involved with the um, taxi business, and uh, you buy these or you somehow get these taxi medallions that gives you the right to operate taxis in the New York City. And this is important because you have to go to airports and pick up people and you have to uh, have the medallion to use the taxi stands and to advertise yourself and all these things. And it's big money, big business. 
And Cohen uh, was estimated in 2017 to own at least 34 taxi medallions through 17 limited liability companies. He got involved with another taxi king, another disbarred attorney and convicted felon, Gene Friedman. And so the two of them uh, got together. And so here he is. He's in bed with an ex-con. And this was before he he was convicted. Um, He got into trouble with the New York State Department of Taxation and Finances. And they filed warrants against him and his wife for $37,000 in unpaid taxi dues. Not a big sum of money, but uh, still, as I've said before, and I like to preach, as you know, pay your taxes and pay them on time, especially if you're in business. Keep yourself out of trouble. Pay your withholdings. Do all of those things. Now, Cohen's been involved in real estate ventures in Manhattan. Apparently, he... uh, lied on loan applications and inflated his net worth to try and leverage his way up. Uh, he bought buildings for $11 million and turned around and sold them for $32 million. And some of this was by, ex- uh, by uh, property exchanges, which are tax-deferred exchanges. And um, he would not reveal who he sold them to. And he purportedly has made millions off of real estate deals, but he uh, has done this in part by uh, falsifying his application to the banks. You're not supposed to do that. That's a federal crime because the banks, if they participate in the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, they're ruled by the feds. And they say that If you are a bank and you make a loan to somebody, you have to have an application with this information in it, and it has to be accurate. And if the bank lies, they're in trouble. And if the client lies, they can get into trouble. And rarely does that happen. Uh, And, of course, you have to say, well, how do you decide what your property is worth? If you want to be absolutely sure, you get an appraisal, but... Uh, you know, if you are going to the bank, a guy like me, and I need to borrow $100,000 to fix up something at the office and get the roof repaired and get the AC up to snuff, then the bank says, all right, we need your financial statement. What's your house worth? I'll say, well, I don't know. I'm guessing around $2 million or a million or whatever. That doesn't mean that it's worth that. It just means that that's what I think it's worth. And if they don't ask for an appraisal, well, that's the number they put down. So I could inflate my net worth easily. And uh, as long as you don't get caught or you don't don't get caught intentionally doing it. I mean, if if someone says, if the feds come in and audit the bank and they say, wait a minute, what about this Handelman guy? How did he get a house worth $2 million when the neighborhood's only supporting houses for a million? And so then they come to me and they say, hey, you got to get an appraisal to justify your $2 million. And so I get an appraisal and it comes back at $1.5 million. I say, oh, well, you know, the market's changed. And then the Fed say, okay, we'll accept that. But you got you to readjust the loan and, and uh, all of the documents and so on and so forth. And so these things happen. But when it's so egregious as from a scumbag like Michael Cohen, that it's obvious that when you go from 11 to $33 million, in a year on property that something's not right, you know, and the feds are looking at this. And so 
he also became enamored with Trump Towers, and he bought a, a condo there, I guess, or an apartment or whatever you call it in the Trump Towers, and he and Trump became friends. I guess Trump and, uh, had uh, asked him if he would be interested in buying in the building, and, uh, you know, Trump's a salesman. That's what you do. You sell your real estate. And so Cohen did, and they got closer, and Cohen encouraged his family members to buy into it. Uh, by the way, his wife uh, is originally, her parents are originally from, I believe, the Ukraine. And uh, she's also been involved in the business with him. And so she has been named as a potential co-conspirator in his criminal activities. And so I think this is some of the pressure that was placed on Cohen to quote, quote, flip or do whatever he did by coming out against Trump after he had been so pro-Trump. The big thing and where the Mueller and Mueller, Mueller, Mueller investigation picked up on this was the Trump-Russia dossier that was published in 2017, and it alleged that Cohen met with Russian officials in Prague, Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic, in 2016. And Cohen has said, no, I didn't. I wasn't in uh, Europe at, at that time. I was in Los Angeles. And so there, you know, we haven't seen the, the Mueller report, the complete thing, so we don't really know what information they have. But purportedly, some Russian intelligence said he was there, and some cell phone tower pings from his cell phone said he was around Prague, and somebody said he was in Germany, in southern Germany, which is close to the Czech border. Um, so a lot of this is... Uh, Hearsay, and there's, there's certainly, I haven't been able to find any, um, any hard data, and we'll have to wait for the report to come out from Mueller and his team to see what actually went on. Now, the, the other meeting was with uh, a couple of people at the Lowe's Regency in Manhattan to, to discuss a plan to lift the sanctions against Russia. And the proposal really was pretty benign. It was that the Russians would get out of the Ukraine and that the Ukrainians would have the option, a referendum on whether Crimea should be leased to Russia uh, or not. And uh, supposedly Cohen was given a written proposal on a sealed envelope that he delivered to uh, Michael Flynn in early February at the beginning of the uh, or last, you know, what, two years ago now, the Trump's presidency at the beginning of his presidency. And in April of 2017, Cohen was appointed as uh, National Deputy Finance Chairman for the Republican National Committee. Now, the BBC in 2018 said that Cohen got money from intermediaries for Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko to arrange a meeting between Poroshenko and Trump, though Cohen was not registered as a foreign agent. And that's not legal. Now, if Cohen and the Ukrainian president office denied the allegations, did it really happen? Who knows? I mean, the BBC is not exactly a conservative organization, and they're not going to uh, bend over backwards to be nice to Trump or any of his people. But let's face it, Cohen's a sociopath, and he has stepped in it repeatedly, and finally somebody has caught up to him, and they're putting him on the carpet. So then... In July, the FBI, on orders from the uh, District Attorney of New York and the 
Mueller, 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 I can't pronounce his name, Mueller, Mueller investigation. I kind of wish it would go away. Uh, seized tape recordings from Cohen's office of conversations that he secretly recorded with his clients, one of which with Trump and purportedly has hush payment discussions being made to Karen McDougal. Uh, now, I'll listen to the little clip that CNN handed and played, and I'm, for the life of me, I can't even figure out how they could uh, seemingly attach it to this incident because there's no mention of what it's about. And I can hardly hear what Trump's saying, and there's questions of whether Trump said pay cash, and Cohen said I'll pay it out of my pocket. And, of course, uh, for a lot of people, cash means dollar bills. Uh, for a businessman, cash means uh, a check or cash. It does not mean a credit card or an IOU or a, or a, a promise to pay. Those are loans. That's credit. So cash and credit are for a businessman. And for me, they're, they're very easily distinguished. Cash is money or a check because you can take that check. And you can immediately um, go get some cash with that check. So I don't even know what they're talking about. I'm not sure what the uh, conversation was that was recorded. And uh, the fact that the government has it and that somebody leaked it to the press uh, is even more disconcerting since this should have been uh, privileged material, but it wasn't. And it may have been leaked by Cohen and his people to try and uh, uh, besmirch the president and to make his own position look better. So at any rate, he got booted from the Republican National Committee. He got booted out of the White House. Um, and now he comes back to Congress last week and he says, oh, I never wanted a position in the White House. And of course, that contradicted not only what he had said prior, but also what the documents and records showed. So that that was lying to Congress. So he lied to Congress again. He's already gotten convicted for lying to Congress. I think he got three to six months tacked on to his sentence for his federal crimes. And when you go and lie under oath, especially if you're an attorney, I mean, you're you're committing a, a, a major sin. That's one of the most egregious things that an attorney can do is to lie under oath. And that's what got Clinton disbarred and got him into so much trouble. It wasn't that uh, Ken Starr had figured out that that the Whitewater deal was, was uh, dishonest and illegal. And, I mean, he already knew that. But uh, where they got most of their leverage was with uh, Clinton lying under oath in a deposition saying that he had not had sex with Monica Lewinsky and had not done other things with other women, which later came out to be true. So he not only was impeached, but he also lost his law license in Arkansas. I believe he's gotten it back now. I'm sure it didn't make any difference to him. And Cohen may be worth so much money that he doesn't care either, that he's got uh, uh, enough stashed away that he can go sit in prison for three years and write his book and sell his story to the tabloids and to the newspapers and the movie rights and make more money. So at any rate, Cohen 
supposedly said that he would pay the $130,000 to Stormy Daniels uh, and that Trump wouldn't have to pay that out of his pocket. And But it, according to the New York Times, again, who are not friendly with Trump, the, the question was, was Trump going to reimburse Cohen for paying off Stormy Daniels and subsequent um, uh, litigation has ensued because Stormy Daniels broke the the agreement of the original negotiated settlement, and I think that uh, I think that they got money back from Stormy Daniels, or there's a judgment against her. It goes on and on. So this guy is just a, a, a real problem child. Uh, he is dishonest. He's dishonest in his personal dealings. He's dishonest in his business dealings. Uh, he's dishonest in his uh, uh, political dealings. He was working with Michael Dukakis, the liberal Democrat back in the 90s, and then he switched because he didn't like Obama. And now he's going back to the Democrats because Trump is, in his words now, a scumbag and a racist and a liar. Let's see. Trump's anti-Semitic, but his lawyer's a Jew. Trump's anti-Semitic. His son-in-law's a Jew. His daughter converted to Judaism. His grandchildren are being raised Jewish. Wait a minute. And they work for him. They're in his inner circle. He's anti-Semitic? I'm, I'm confused. I mean, look, when the boys are in the locker room talking, all kinds of things are said, and that doesn't mean that you're anti-Semitic or anti-Catholic or anti-black. It just means that you're shooting the bull. And we do this at the nurses' station with, you know, the Puerto Rican guys, the black guys, the white guys, me. We're all there, and we're all shooting the bull and, you know, calling each other names and razzing each other. We're not racist. We're not bigots. We're guys, and we're just talking trash. So I'm not sure what all this is about. Now the National Enquirer is involved, and... Apparently, one of Trump's best buddies is on the board or the chairman of the National Enquirer, the company that owns it. And so uh, and that, that's what's got uh, Jeff Bezos all riled up because Bezos spoke ill of the president. And the president said, well, you know, we got dirt on you too, bud. And so the National Enquirer said, well, here you go. Here's the dirt. Here's your girlfriend and you and dirty pictures of you. So you have to be careful not only not to get on the wrong side of the law if you're a sociopath, but on the wrong side of the people that you are trying to harm because they may be big, powerful, important people. And purportedly, uh, one of Cohen's relatives, a doctor, was a doctor to the Lucchese family, the crime family in New York City. So he's got connections to the Italian mafia, the Russian mafia, and uh, he's in shady deals all over the place. He's a liar, a thief, and a cheat. And he goes to Congress and apologizes and then again perjures himself. I don't know, Bill. I think this guy's just an idiot. Um, now this scumbag captures the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, what are you going to do? And, and that's the problem with sociopaths is they, they let their emotions overtake their intellect. And then they get themselves into deep, deep doo-doo. Well, that's the story on Michael Cohen, and uh, I'm glad you guys were with me this morning. 
I look forward to seeing you next week. And remember that you can't make money your God. It just doesn't work. And I hope that everybody has a great weekend. Love you guys. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. See you next week. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.